0: Revelation chapter 2 verses 18 to 29 The New Living Translation Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is a message from the Son of God whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality therefore i will show her i will throw her on a bed of suffering and those who commit adultery with her suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds i will strike her children dead then all the churches will know that i am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person and i will give to each of you whatever you deserve but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching. Deeper truths, as they call them. Depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Hello and welcome uh,
1: to this week's Signpost where we're looking at uh, Revelation chapter 2 verses 18 to 29 and reflecting on uh, the message to the church in uh, Thyatira. Uh, it was uh, the longest of the seven messages uh, and reading it can be a bit like Groundhog of Day, it all seems very familiar. Uh, the social conditions of the city were similar to that of Pergamum brought, and brought the same kind of external pressures of persecution, financial hardship and social dislocation. Equally like the church in Pergamum, the congregation in Thyatira also faced the internal pressures of false teaching, eating food that had been offered to idols, uh, and sexual immorality. In his opening statement, Jesus picks up on imagery from the first chapter of Revelation to describe himself, and his explicit self-description as the Son of God uh, stands out here because it's quite rare. In the Gospels, it's Satan who questions that identity, uh, and it's others like the St. Julian at uh, the crucifixion uh, who declare Jesus to be the Son of God. And the rarity of it here suggests that the title itself uh, is Sending a Message. Uh, Cities are normally famous for specific reasons. Uh, Glasgow used to be famous for its shipbuilding and its trading, especially in uh, tobacco. Uh, Thyatira, while not a major city like Ephesus, was famous for its fine bronze and its purple cloth. Uh, Paul's first contact in Philippi was a woman called Lydia. She was from Thyatira and she was a seller of purple cloth. Uh, And as Ian Paul notes, the city lay on trade routes and had good communications. The roads to and from it were well maintained by both Emperors Vespasian and Domitian, and as a result, it also became the centre of slave trade in the region. But it was also famous for uh, its divine guardian, uh, Apollo, who was thought to be the son of God, the son of the god Zeus. Uh, He was the patron of many of the trade guilds in the city, including the Bronze Guild. Uh, So Jesus begins his message to the church with a direct challenge to the dominant religious beliefs of the city, declaring that he, and not Apollo, is the Son of God, a fact that's further emphasised by the phrase, My Father, uh, at the end of the message. And his initial assessment of the congregation is very positive. His eyes like burning fire that see everything, have seen their love, their faith, their service, their patient endurance and crucially he sees their constant improvement in all these things. So here's a church that is doing all the right things well and improving in all of these areas. It's a growing and maturing church. Uh, what you would say was a model for other churches to follow. Uh, Not only that, but these improvements were being made despite suffering and persecution. Uh, And although the message doesn't talk much about that, we can know that it was all in the background. You see, one of the other things that Thyatira was famous for was it had an unusually large number of trade guilds. And that was a real problem for the church. As Gordon Fee notes, these guilds also served as the primary social structure for the artisans and their families. Each of these guilds had their patron deities and the primary social events among the guilds were the festive meals. Uh, At those meals, food was served in a context where it had been sacrificed to the patron deity. Very often these meals became an occasion for sexual immorality to flourish, where girls were made available at the male-only meals. If you've been following these uh, signposts, you'll know that it would have been impossible for any of the Christians to do business in the city without being a member of a trade guild, and that would have meant participating in these feasts. Uh, And as we noted previously, that was not a neutral act. Taking part in the feast was tantamount to worshipping the God in whose honour the feast was held. And by doing that, the participants opened themselves up to the spiritual forces behind that patron deity. Uh, And it seems from Jesus' criticism that some of them were doing that very thing. But unlike the church in Pergamum, it was not because of a group of false teachers in the church, but because of the influence of just one person, a woman who is named here as Jezebel. Through her teaching, though uh, some, though not all of uh, the believers in, in Thyatira, uh, had begun to compromise the exclusive commitment to Jesus, leading to his criticism and warning of judgment. Now it's, it's very unlikely that this woman's real name was Jezebel, rather Jesus uses the name because this woman's teaching had all the hallmarks of another woman called Jezebel from Israel's past. Her story is found in 1 Kings 16 through to 2 Kings 9. She was the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon, uh, two cities that were very hostile to Israel. And so her marriage to the king of Israel, Ahab, was effectively a peace treaty uh, between them. But she was a committed worshipper of the fertility nature god Baal. And it didn't take her long to influence her husband and uh, his officials uh, to sanction and promote Baal worship in Israel. And soon other gods, like the female fertility god Astarte, were being worshipped in Israel. See, what Jezebel did was she didn't try and eradicate the worship of Yahweh, Israel's God. What she did was to argue that Baal and other gods could be worshipped alongside Yahweh at the same time. Now Israel was unique in the ancient world in that it worshipped Yahweh exclusively. It was a nation who worshipped one God only amongst nations that worshipped many. At least it was supposed to. And whenever it strayed into idolatry and worshipping other gods, the prophets came along and reminded them that they were to be exclusively loyal to Yahweh. The founding command of the Ten Commandments it states explicitly, you, sh- you must not have any other God but me. In a dramatic showdown between Elijah the prophet and uh, 450 prophets of Baal, Elijah reminded them that it had to be one or the other. How long will you waver between two opinions, he said. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God follow him. The choice for God's people was Yahweh or Baal, not Yahweh and Baal. Now we don't know exactly what deep things this woman was teaching, but the link to Jezebel from the First Testament suggests that it was the same both and position, that Jesus could be worshipped alongside the gods of the city and the empire. In some way, she was suggesting that participating in the feasts of the trade guilds and the accompanying worship um, that would be part of that um, would not affect their relationship with Jesus. It was a classic pitch to have the best of both worlds. And Jesus' assessment is blunt. She called her teaching the deeper truths, but Jesus called them. The depths of Satan. Now, we may well wonder how one person is able to so affect the health of a church. But history is filled with examples of that. And in Matthew 16, Jesus uses, uh, he speaks about how a, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough um, as a metaphor for the false teaching of the Pharisees. Sometimes it just takes one person. A little yeast leavens the whole lump. G.K. Beale is right therefore to ask a really important question, a question that we need to ask of ourselves. Is it possible for Satan to send emissaries into churches in order to destroy them? That's an important question that deserves to be reflected on long and hard. But the message that you can follow Jesus and worship other gods is still being promoted today. There's never been a shortage of self-styled prophets like uh, this woman in Thyatira who tell us that we can indeed have the best of both worlds. Missiologists Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch have referred to the phenomenon of vampire Christians, people who want all the benefits of Jesus' blood, they want salvation, they want eternal life, they want heaven, but they also want all the benefits that this world has to offer, and there are plenty of people telling them they can have both. The pitch is the same, it always has been. Well, yes, of course Jesus said that we should do this or that we should do that. But that's not how things work in the real world. As long as you do that on a Sunday or, well, that's for when the kingdom comes in all its fullness. It's not for right now. Jesus didn't mean us to do that right now. And so we engage in what is called compartmentalization, meaning that we live according to one set of values and priorities in one sphere of life. Home, work, or church. And then we live according to a whole other set of values and priorities in another sphere of life. I've known of Christian businessmen who were very pious in the pew on a Sunday, but were known in their business dealings to be ruthless uh, and dishonest, not to be trusted. We compartmentalise our lives. Society tells us that religious faith is a private matter. It shouldn't be brought into this public square of the real world. In other words, it should not affect our everyday lives in the world in which we actually live. And I think the reality is that whilst um, you know, many professing Christians may not believe that ideologically, they seem to believe it practically this approach is so widespread that one scholar suggests that Jezebel's philosophy is the dominant and controlling spirit of the age. You can have it all. Don't miss the point that Jesus makes. The woman he calls Jezebel might be the mouthpiece, but the pitch comes from Satan. In spiritual terms, compartmentalization of our lives is just a fancy word for idolatry, which is connected to the sexual immorality that's mentioned here. Throughout Revelation and elsewhere in scripture, the Greek word for sexual immorality, pornea, is used metaphorically to refer to idolatry as a form of spiritual adultery. Given the link with Jezebel from 1 and 2 Kings, that's probably the primary idea in mind in this message to the church in Thyatira. Although the idea has a long history in the First Testament, the book of Hosea is a sustained sermon on the subject of spiritual adultery. In fact, Hosea is commanded by God to marry a harlot as an illustration for the people about God's relationship with Israel, his unfaithful wife. The illustration goes through three stages. In chapter 1, the sinful adultery of Hosea's wife and Israel destroys their covenant relationships with Hosea and God respectively. Chapter 2 reveals a cycle of confrontations and redemptive chastening. And in chapter 3, there is a restoration of covenant relationships through love. Hosea's marriage was a powerful illustration of an oft-forgotten truth that idolatry is not a neutral act. It is always spiritual adultery. And participation in such worship just is not compatible with being the people of God. We cannot be united with Jesus and at the same time be united with the idols of our age. Our relationship with Jesus is to be exclusive for he alone is the son of God incarnate. To quote a Highlander, there can be only one. Since some form of idolatry lies behind every sin, no one can claim to be innocent in this matter. But what Jesus is trying to do here is to get us to see such sin for what it really is, in order that we might turn away from spiritual adultery to spiritual faithfulness. These things that we compartmentalise our behaviours are not neutral acts. We can't have it both ways. It's not Jesus and the things of the world. As we noted when we considered the message to Pergamum, the spiritual can never be fully separated from the physical. Being spiritually faithful is expressed in physical faithfulness, such as not attending the feasts of the trade guilds for us in 21st century that might mean not bowing down at the idols of consumerism and materialism and the identity politics of the, which is a really idolatry of the self none of us are innocent in this but God is gracious and we see here that even this woman in Thyatira is given the opportunity repent. Sadly she has thus far refused and so Christ announces his judgment. Not only will this woman be punished but all who lie with her, that is all who go along with her teaching, will be struck dead unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. If the judgment seems severe we should note that its purpose is not punishment but repentance. And it will also serve to remind the churches that Jesus will give to each one according to their deeds. Darrell Johnson comments that these words ought to fill us with what scripture calls the fear of the Lord. Jesus is saying here that he respects our free moral choices. He honours the decisions that we make. If we do the deeds of Jezebel, we will inherit the consequences of her deeds. But if we do the deeds of Jesus... We will inherit the consequences of his deeds, being one with him in the love and joy of his father. We should also note that the focus of Jesus' complaint against the church in Thyatira is that they have tolerated this woman and her teaching. In other words, they've allowed it to flourish unchecked. They've let her have her say. They've not stopped her. As I heard recently on one uh, podcast, we become what we tolerate. Tolerance is the most prized virtue of 21st century Western democracies. Um, To be labelled intolerant is to be cast out from all that is good in society. The great irony of the gospel of tolerance is, of course, that it is often a mask for the deepest intolerance. As philosopher Karl Popper has noted, there is a paradox at the heart of tolerance that states that if a society is tolerant without limit, its ability to be tolerant is eventually seized or destroyed by the intolerant in that society. He concluded that in order to maintain a tolerant society, must be intolerant of intolerance. It's a paradox that no one in our society seems to have been able to solve. The fact is that tolerance has a dark side. It is good to be tolerant, but not all that we are tolerant of is good. And it's God who sets the standard. As the psalmist reminds us, God is good And all that he does is good. Fortunately, not all the believers in Thyatira went along with this woman's teaching. And Jesus exhorted them to hold on to what they had. Given that the teaching they had rejected was to follow Jesus and worship other gods at the same time, what they had uh, was a commitment to exclusive allegiance to Jesus. And if they hold tightly to that exclusive allegiance right to the end, then they'll be given authority to rule the nations, but even more importantly, they'll be given the morning star. Jesus refers to himself by this title in Revelation 22 and 16. And as Beale notes, it's a symbol associated with the messianic reign which has commenced with Christ's resurrection. Ultimately, if we remain obedient to the very end, we get... Jesus. The word translated as victorious is used in all seven messages to the churches but it's defined here as obeying his words until the very end. To live in obedience to the words of Jesus is to find yourself at odds with the world around you. It is to be rejected, to lose out financially and socially in this world but it also means that in the world to come you will reign with Jesus. No wonder Paul says in Philippians 3 and 13 that he focuses on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Keep your eyes on the prize and may God bless you in the week ahead.